Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. Welcome to Nature Tripping, episode 17. In this episode, we're in the graveyard of a church in a small town in Shropshire. We're chatting with Harriet Carty from a charity called Caring for God's Acre and finding out about the special features graveyards and other burial grounds have that make them so important for local biodiversity. We'll be listening to some sounds from in and around the graveyard and talking about how these spaces can be managed for nature and for people. Hello. Hello, Harriet. And who else have we got with us? Oh, sorry. Oh, we've got Sparrow, my little dog who's chewing a noisy stick. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about Caring for God's Acre, this organisation and what it's mm. all about? Yes, it's, it's a funny sort of idea, I think to have a charity just for burial grounds. So burial grounds of all types and denominations, churchyards, chapel yards, cemeteries, green burial grounds. It doesn't matter, but it does always seem a bit of a funny, quirky thing to have a specific charity. But when you sort of find out a bit more about them, you realise they're they're actually really important for biodiversity, my Mm. sort of area of particular interest, Mm. but also fantastic built heritage. I mean, this churchyard's where we are now has got about 12 listed Georgian tombs, absolutely beautiful things. And also it's where you can really find out about the social history of a place, not just the famous people, but everybody Mm. is memorialised here. And you can see, you know, who lived here, changing surnames with time when different people moved about the place, um, life expectancy, all sorts of things can be discovered in here. So they are really very interesting. And the charity exists to sort of look after them, preserve them? So the charity's here to enthuse people about how brilliant they are, help those who are managing them, and just generally sort of find out more about them Mm. and raise awareness. How did it all start? It started around here, actually. It started in South Shropshire. My predecessor, somebody called Sue Cooper, set up a a project within the um, South Shropshire area of outstanding natural beauty, the AOMB, to just sort of write management plans, advise church wardens, work with church wardens. And it went so well that she and some others then went on to turn it into a charity. 
which started off as a local charity and then has grown to be, well, not completely national, but covering England and Wales. I mean, we reckon there's about 150,000 volunteers looking after churchyards and um, friends of cemeteries, all sorts of things. It's, yeah. it's a really sort of big movement that, that's slightly under the radar, I think. Mm. And how old is this cemetery, this burial ground, do you think? How so we don't really know, but we do know that the tower is Norman of this church. So churches get rebuilt over time. You start off with one old bit, then that gets knocked down. The Victorians like to mess about with them a lot and, and, and change them. So you'd look at a church building and you think, well, this is a Victorian church, it's not very mm. old. Um, but actually with this one, we know that the tower is Norman. So yeah. probably the bit of the church we're in now, which is sort of quite a rounded shape around the church itself, that's probably at least Norman, assuming mm. that tower was the first thing and there wasn't an earlier Saxon building here before. The bit that's sort of behind you over there, that is an extension, that's clearly, you know, a field's been bought and that's where all the modern mm. graves are. So it's all interesting, but the old bit will probably have the most biodiversity mm. in it. So Norman, what century are we talking about? For those of us who are poor at our history. Well, it's 1066 and all that. Oh, yeah. it's <laughs> 1066. It could be yeah. 11th century or 12th century. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so a thousand years ago. Yeah. This piece of ground has only been used for religious Church and church activities yeah. and burials for the last thousand years. Thousand years, exactly. But it could be longer than that, couldn't it? Because mm. many churches were built on grounds that were sacred for pre-Christian. Yeah, they were. In pre-Christian times. It's kind of all about the soil in a way, isn't it? So the soil, the ground, hasn't been used for farming or building houses on. It's just been left, but then used for burying humans in for hundreds of years. So yeah. the content or composition of the soil must be very special. Yeah, and the other thing that I think is really special about it is it's been managed more or less the same way all that time because we do know that before about the 17th century there weren't monuments. People didn't have permanent grave markers, so it was a meadow. So the lord of the manor would get a sort of place in the crypt and a, a statue or a bronze or something like that and everyone else would be just sort of... Chucked in the field by the, the, by the field, church. Yeah. It was a sort of consecrated piece of land. It wasn't just yeah. the field by the church, but basically, yes. Mm. It's a meadow, basically, used for outdoor services and also for sort of fairs and games. And um, I think on a church in Clun near here, you can see the marks where people sharpen their arrows. So it was compulsory archery practice for all of the men and the boys in the community. So it was a useful green space. And we know how it was managed because there's records of the hay crop being part of the vicar's pay. So we know they took a hay crop. There's also records of a vicar's being told off for growing crops, told to stop growing turnips because it's got to be grassland. So it's been that sort of, you know, very special thing in, in, in our country, species-rich, unimproved grassland mm. for possibly over a thousand years. Which has almost disappeared from every other part mm. of the landscape, hasn't it? Mm. We don't know, but we reckon they're probably fantastically good carbon stores, these churchyards, because mm. of that undisturbed, apart from, you know, the occasional six-foot-down hole, yeah. <laughs> very, very undisturbed, and just the build-up of life within them. We're hoping yeah. to sort of do a bit of work and find out just how good they are, but probably excellent carbon stores. When you say flower-rich grassland, what is it? Late April, we, we can see dandelions, daisies, the end of some daffodils. 
What other types of flowers would be growing here generally? Well, we're sort of in a bit of a shady place here, so there's some sort of woodland things. There's arum lily coming in, there's celandine, there's some wood anemone, there's some bluebells. But over, sort of over there where it's grassy, oxide daisies, a whole range of vetches, ladies' bed straw, all sorts of things. And fantastic grassland fungi as well. Mm. We won't find any today, but, you know, in the autumn, we see lots and lots of wax caps particularly. And they're great for wildlife generally, aren't they? Because we, we, can, we, we can hear these rooks. There's a rookery here. Insects. Well, we've I seen the orange tip and a speck of wood just in the little yeah, while we've been here. I yeah. think I saw a small chalky blue butterfly. Holly blues are sort of the churchyard butterfly because they okay. feed on both holly and ivy. Okay. And every churchyard, every cemetery has holly and ivy, but yeah. What about bats? I've not monitored for any bats. There's a look, what looks like a brimstone, a yellow butterfly just went flying past. Ooh. No, I'll come tonight, Cathy, yeah. if we're still around. Yeah, yeah the wood pigeons. There's yes. plenty of wood pigeons here. We had um, a goldfinch earlier. Could hear that calling away. You should hear a song thrush, sometimes yeah. a missile thrush in the evening. Yeah. Are there any birds of prey that you've seen around here? Since Sparrowhawk yeah. nipping about. This is another feature of them, isn't it? There's plenty of open ground and mature trees or old trees and space between, and there's a sort of glades and clearings mm. effect, isn't it? We do get species that are sort of species of woodland edge. This churchyard's, I know last year, had two pairs of spotted flycatcher breeding in it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. They're quite rare now. They are, aren't they? Yeah. But... Because well, the other thing about it is, um, is it's not treated. There's no pesticides so on it, no plenty herbicides. of insects. And yeah. those, the, the spotted flycatchers are insectivorous, aren't they? Mm. So they can only really nest and breed somewhere where there's plenty of insect food. But you do see some burial grounds which are very manicured and tidy. How do you manage to kind of um, discourage people from using herbicides and pesticides in those situations? On the whole, people don't use herbicides and pesticides. I mean, sometimes some people want to spray around the base of the monuments, yeah. which is a real shame because the monuments are also fantastic for lichens. Um, but most don't. Most don't use them. Um, it's an interesting thing about this sort of our preoccupation with short grass, I think. We sort of would encourage people to just slightly take the foot off the pedal a bit in terms of management. And quite a good rule of thumb is to think about what the churchyard would have looked like when the person whose memorial it is was alive. Mm. So over there where we've got the modern, mm. the modern graves, we'd say, well, let's keep that short, keep that really neat so people can easily move amongst it and not worried about tripping up and, you know, it's how they're expecting it to look. But around this bit where most of the graves are Victorian or Georgian, it, mm. it would have been this meadow. So to my mind, you're putting the monument in its historic context mm. if you have slightly longer grass rather than, you know, really mowing it very short. Another, another thing in, in that is that the Church of England and the Church in Wales and also I think most of the councils who manage cemeteries have a commitment to try and reduce their carbon. You know, the churches are aiming for carbon neutrality by 2030, mm. which is very optimistic. You know, it's a very brave... Um, aim, a very laudable aim and really, you know, they've got to have a little think how many petrol and diesel mowers they've got trundling up and down every two weeks and see if they mm. can perhaps 
slightly, slightly reduce that. Mm. And also, the longer grass stores more carbon yeah. as well. You mentioned lichens on the gravestones and memorials. What's, what's so special about that? So a graveyard's basically could have been invented for lichens, really. It's a sort of lichen sanctuary in that lichens will settle on anything that's sort of, you know, still, really. So um, the churchyard wall probably, with little bits of mending, has been here since, you know, perhaps those Norman times, so that already would have had a lot of lichens on. Mm. And these monuments are just perfect. There's different kinds of stone, there's different orientations... There's little micro-climates in the nooks and crannies of the carving. You can have, I mean, you can easily have up to 100 species in a churchyard. Right. Lichens are a bit of an acquired taste, you know, they're, they're very hard to identify and they, lots of them do look quite similar, but they are incredibly special, the lichens, so, yeah. Cathy might put her cards on the table here and say that you're acquiring that taste at the moment, aren't you? You've been yeah, doing quite suddenly, a lot of reading. Suddenly, know, suddenly on got books very on lichen have turned up on the kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite exciting. These, some of these gravestones are absolutely covered in lichens, aren't they? Mm. There are, there's clearly lots of different types all around us. Mm. And they're actually a symbiotic relationship between an algae and a fungi. So a lichen isn't an individual plant. It's a fungi and an algae joining together to harness each other's qualities and create this new thing. So the alga is doing photosynthesis and making food and the fungus is benefiting from that food produced by the algae but providing the alga with structure and support and protection from the elements. And on these stones we've mainly got these kind of crusts, haven't we? Crusts of algae, rather than on a tree where you might have fronds. Tufty, dandy yeah. bits. Yeah. Mm. yeah, a bit like barnacles, I suppose, aren't they? The way they attach themselves to the stone and cover it so you can't actually see the engravings anymore. Well, sometimes you can see them better with lichens because they do keep the weather off as well. They stop erosion. OK. And um, sometimes you can read the bits that have got lichens on. And then in between, there'll be eroded letters. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. Hello, Sparrow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm. so has, has somebody been and identified lots of the species in this graveyard? Yes. Yeah. The British Lichen Society has, has been around an unbelievable number of churchyards identifying lichens. Yes. And um, made all of their records just freely available to anybody. So, yeah. So, the work that your charity does, mm. how many churchyards or burial grounds have you managed to influence to manage those spaces in ways that um, benefit the wildlife? That is a very difficult question to answer. We don't really know. Okay. I mean, we have a volunteer team that goes out to over 30 of them based, based here in South Shropshire. We have a membership of low hundreds. We recently had a conference that over 200 people came to. Um, it's a bit like throwing a throwing a pebble into water you don't know where the ripples are going yeah. every now and again someone will get in touch and they'll say oh I read something you know I read this article by you 10 years ago and um, I've been doing it ever since mm. and we're like wow mm. you know <laughs> amazing so we did run something last year in partnership with the Church of England the Church of Wales and a charity called Arosha called Churches Count on Nature where we were just encouraging people to go into burial grounds and just 
see what wildlife they could see and um, then just let us know what they'd seen, whether it's a magpie on a molehill or, you know, a full invertebrate species list. Yeah. And considering that there were sort of COVID restrictions in place, we thought maybe 50 people will do it and over 500 did. Yeah. So we did get a bit of a feel that, you know, of, of perhaps how far the influence is, yeah. So we've moved a spot and as we were walking along we came across the long grass and the dandelions and I just wanted to ask Harriet, do people say, well I don't like this, it's messy? They do, sometimes they say that and they usually say it to the person who does the mowing because they're oh. the person there on site. Sometimes they write things in the comments book, you know, visitors book. It, there is definitely a balance to be struck. I mean, I think this churchyard strikes it really well. So all of the area around the church building and the entrance to it is short mown around the war memorial. There's some war graves, there's a short mown around those. The recent graves is kept very, very neat. And the edges of paths are mown on either side of paths. So paths are nice and wide. I think, because you need to be able to walk around don't you, without tripping over you and do. getting your wet feet. You so, do, but... and it feels, it feels yeah. managed. And so that, that immediately takes out a lot of the anxiety and criticism, because probably some of these graves are historically interesting and actually paths are mown to those ones. You can pick up a leaflet and follow okay. little mown grass paths around seeing yeah. the sort of, you know, interesting local history. But very few people are going to visit these other mainly Victorian graves. So, so it, 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 does, it does sort of work for both, both mm. sorts of people. I would say, though, if you, if you are interested in wildlife and you're in a churchyard, go and write something nice in the visitor's <laughs> book. Go and write something about how lovely it was yeah. to see the flowers. Because yeah. the, the counterbalance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There have been some surveys done asking people how they feel about churchyards that are managed like this one, you know, for people and wildlife. And most people like it. Mm. Far, far the majority like it. But, um, but the minority can be really vocal. Mm. Yes. Really vocal. And the vicars and the church wardens, they know who they are. You know, <laughs> they, they, they live with them day by day. So it is really worth trying to say something nice. Mm. If, if you see a lot of wildflowers in your pleased to see them, please mention it.
If you visit an old churchyard in England or Wales, you'll likely come across a yew tree, a dark, somewhat foreboding-looking evergreen with spiny green needles. The Woodland Trust's website describes yews as ancient, morbid and toxic, and also one of the longest-lived native species in Europe, leading them to become symbols of immortality on the one hand and omens of death and doom on the other. Over three-quarters of Britain's ancient and veteran yews, so that's about 800 trees, reside in churchyards in England and Wales. Yews, in fact, have no upper age limit and can carry on regenerating. If you find one, you could be standing beside the oldest living thing for miles around. Some are believed to be thousands of years old, predating Christianity and indicating the presence of an earlier pagan site of spiritual importance. We've come to stand underneath the oldest yew in the burial ground. And it's, I mean, it's towering above us. It's really ranchy, quite chaotic looking, and it's also got ivy in amongst it. But the trunk is at least, what, is that at least four metres around? At least. At least. It's a very, yeah. maybe five or six, to yeah. be honest. But, um, and I read that they're hollow in the middle. After 600 years, they get hollow in the middle. Yeah, this one isn't hollow yet. This no. is this is a young stripling of a you, really. <laughs> <laughs> it still looks really massive. It's, it must be going to start. It's starting to hollow out, I would imagine. I think there was a blackbird singing in it earlier. And somebody, there's some poo there. There was some birds obviously roosting mm. in it. And I bet things nest in those nooks and crannies. There are a lot of nooks and crannies, aren't there? And the bark's kind of scaly. And the berries are red. Yeah. And they're bright red. Yeah. And liked by birds. In particular, thrushes. You really get the winter thrushes coming in and just descending on them. You know, okay. you can see red wing, field fair, song thrush and mistle thrush and blackbird, you know, all in one tree just Devouring. scoffing away yeah. in, in the autumn. Yeah. No, it's a really important food source. They're quite nice, actually. The seed in the middle is really poisonous, but you can slurp <laughs> off the... Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. 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 I watched somebody doing it and then dared do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you yes. did do it. I have, yeah, because yeah. the person I was with went, oh, it was delicious, chomp, 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 and I thought, mm. oh, I can do this then. <laughs> it was quite nice. And how about the fungus? Have you eaten any of the fungus in the, in the graveyard? Come um, autumn. Found a seps in one, yes, I did. I took that home for tea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Confidently identified. <laughs> As we've mentioned, burial grounds can feature this unique and now really rare thing in Britain of grassland that's been relatively undisturbed and only lightly managed for hundreds or even thousands of years, unimproved by fertilisers and naturally reseeding itself. It's time to get down on our hands and knees and take a bit of a closer look at what's going on beneath our feet. So we're looking at a, a sort of a patch of, of ground just to see what we can see. And one of the first things is to point out that, do you think maybe 20% of it is grass? Not even that. If, yeah, no, less. Less than 20%. You're right. So like the area, the grass itself is only occupying a tiny amount. So yeah. And it's fine grasses, it's yeah. fine meadow grasses okay, as well. So, so it's very so. different from what you would sow on a lawn or Absolutely. you'd find in a lawn, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a bit of moss. 
There's a bit of moss. Yeah, we're in a little bit of a shady place and there's a bit of moss. But I mean, we've got, well, ordinary daisy here. There's some self-heal. There's clovers. That's Jamanda Speedwell. Quite a lot of probably cats here. I don't know that yeah. I could confidently identify. That makes them that sort of orangey daisy type flower, doesn't it? That's fox and cubs. Okay. Is the real is the really orange one. Right. Cat's who is more yellow. Is that a strawberry? Or is yeah, that's barren strawberry. Barren strawberry. So quite a furry little little chap. But yeah. Celandines. Yeah. And there's a little rush here. Oh yeah, that is field wood rush. That's quite a nice sort of indicator of an old old meadow as well. So if you went to a park that had been managed. Mm. Maybe they've been doing some weed killing with glyphosate over the years, um, mowing it all through the season. Would there be this many species? No, there certainly wouldn't be as many species. I mean, I can see two kinds of plantain here. Mm. Um, I'll probably find oxide daisies as well as bush fetch there. There would definitely wouldn't be as many species. Um, one of the key things to, to keep it this species rich is to pick up the grass cuttings. When you've mown it. When you've mown yeah. it, which is quite difficult in a space like this that's full of, <laughs> full of monuments. You have to sort of scythe or strim around some of them. You, there's only some places you can even use a mower. But it's, it's, it's really worth doing. Whereas in a park, they'd be quite unlikely to do that. It's always mulching and enriching the grass, and you're losing, losing yeah. species that way. There's a little violet. Oh, yeah. Good spot. So it's the input of nutrients where you start to lose the biodiversity. If the nutrient levels become too high in the mm. grassland, mm. then certain plants will disappear. Yeah. 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 And taking away the grass clippings means you're progressively removing nutrients. Removing them or not increasing them. Oh, yeah, I suppose, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, basically, you know, they're getting them from the sun and you're not, you're not letting it build up. Yeah. The same way as grazing it would do that as yeah. well, where yeah. the nutrients then be growing the sheep or the cow or whatever it is. And does it, what about the timing of cutting? Does that matter or not? Yeah, very much so. I mean, to, to get a nice flowery meadow, we're basically copying old-fashioned agriculture. That's what we're doing. Remember the vicar, vicar getting the hay crop. So you want to leave it for sort of about somewhere between 12 and 16 weeks, so three or four months uncut over the spring and summer yeah so one thing might be to do a cut at the end of march and then leave it april may june cut again in in maybe late july yeah or if it's full of spring flowers you can't do a spring cut really try and cut it early july yeah. um, don't leave it too long because um you wanting to cut it when there's still a lot of vigor a farmer wouldn't wait until all the flowers had finished flowering and all the the nutrients were back in the ground. They cut it when it was really full of a lot of energy, mm. a lot of sugars to feed mm. the animals. And you're mm. sort of copying that. Quite a common mistake is to leave it too long. People go, oh, there's still still one or two things flowering. I can't yeah. cut it yet. No, get get in, cut cut them, yeah. cut them off.
managing a burial ground is absolutely not rewilding. It's it's just slightly reverting to traditional management or just sort of slightly um, reducing the amount of management. But we're not walking away and neglecting it. If we did, it would go to scrub, go to hawthorn, blackthorn, brambles, mm. things like that, then it would go to trees. Mm. So it's keeping it as grassland, mm. which is what's been happening for all these centuries. This bit here we're looking at here is short mown. It's probably been mown short for, for decades, if not, you know, for ages, because it's next to a, a rather beautiful Georgian monument, and so they've mown an area around that so people can have a look at it. And there's a huge amount of biodiversity in this turf, a huge amount of flora. There won't be that much fauna above ground because there won't be very many flowers mm. if it's mown regularly. But because the person who mows it is cutting it and taking away the clippings. It's almost like holding that precious turf sort of almost in aspic. You don't lose the species, amazingly. Um, but if you want to see the flowers, enjoy the flowers, have a whole load of pollinators there, have a whole load of things sheltering at the bottom of this bit over here with longer grass, mm. um, then you will let it grow long in order to let it flower. Mm. But in terms of the management, this is probably a species-rich flora. It's a good, it, it, the flora is as good here on this short mown bit as it is on the, on the long mown bit. Mm, and that's interesting. Provided in both of them, you're taking away the grass the cutting, so you're taking away the nutrients mm. rather than building them up. The area that's now long with flowering, celandines and vetch and forget-me-nots and dalanines, that'll get cut eventually and its clippings removed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A really nice thing to do, if you can do it in, in the churchyard, is to have some short grass, some medium or long grass, and then an area that, that's a little bit scrubby. Maybe yeah. where we started off around the back, under some trees, that probably gets cut every few years. So you can imagine things would overwinter there. Mm. But it won't be very species rich. It'll have sort of coarse mm. glasses and some nettles, things like that. But there'll be lots of nooks and crannies for mm. things to overwinter in. And, and cover for small mammals. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes. So it's providing that diversity of habitats. Yeah, within the, within the holes. Mm. Yeah. You often find slow worms. And you find a lot of small mammals and bumblebees, things that are needing somewhere to get underground or get into, into um, the shade. Because all of these monuments, you know, there's the bases of them, there'll be little sort of holes that things can get into, um, the ground subsides, it's very humpy-bumpy. Even when people are trying to make it be manicured, it's really difficult because, you know, there's subsidence going on from the graves. So you get an awful lot of little nooks and crannies and, and places for, for creatures to, to hibernate or, or, you know, shelter. What's the impact of um, all the bodies? And <laughs> what, because there's some pollution, potentially there's some pollution aspects, aren't there? Well, we were thinking, like, people have mercury fillings, uh, people have titanium hips. Some people have been embalmed. Some people have cover, yeah, uh, injected Balming with formaldehyde. And I guess that's going to be less of an issue, potentially, in these very old parts of the cemetery where none of those medical interventions had been invented. But maybe in the newer cemeteries, you've got some 
soil contamination going on from the people that you've buried there and the things that are in them. Yeah, I, I don't honestly know. I've also wondered about that, and I've also wondered about how much the bodies enrich yeah. enrich the soil and yeah. whether they're a carbon store as well. Yeah. But they are deep. I mean, that's one thing. You know, they're, they're a long way down. Well, I think if, you, um, if your body, if the body is buried, it is a carb. It's going in as a carbon store, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than being cremated and dispatched as CO2. Yeah. I mean, eventually, the creatures that decompose the body will, there will be some CO2 released, but it's very slow. I'm definitely going to be buried, not cremated. I want to be buried. I want to be buried in a in a willow basket. <laughs> <laughs> or I wouldn't mind being fed to the fishes. It's hard to, harder to arrange. I wouldn't mind being eaten at sea. Mm. Or an air burial. I would like to be eaten by vultures. That would be the <laughs> ultimate gift back to the birds. Um, no, when we were looking up about the possible pollution effects in graveyards, we came across this phrase of necroleachate, the liquid which might be seeping out from all the buried bodies, including obviously organic matter and salts and nitrogen and chemicals. I know that it has been a consideration in terms yeah. of groundwater pollution. Right. Is it mainly at the planning stage where you Maybe, locate yeah. a new burial yeah. ground? Yeah. You'd right. have to work, make sure that you're not on a groundwater vulnerable zone or something like mm. that in case you contaminate the local water supply with necroleachate during the horror on the Gothic. calls for action. Yes, yes, there are. I think it would be really brilliant if people sort of explored the churchyard or the cemetery near where they live. I think an awful lot of us did in lockdown. We suddenly found all the green spaces that you could easily walk to, didn't we, that we might previously not have been to. And see what's in it. Let us know. Do a bit of recording and tell us what you see. That would be brilliant. And also just have a think who's managing it and how and whether they might like a little bit of help mm. because I mean churchyards in particular they're you know they're managed by the church community in a small place that might not be very many people they might be quite elderly um, they might not really have very many resources they might absolutely love some help as I've said quite often they do get criticism but they don't very often get praise and they don't very often get offers of help. <laughs> so it's probably the best meadow in your community, in your area. Probably got the oldest trees. It's got all these fungi, these lichens, brilliant perches for birds. Your garden birds that you're kind of enjoying on your feeder, they may well be nesting in these, the evergreens in the churchyard. So I think we all are valuing churchyards and cemeteries, whether or not we're visiting a grave of somebody we know, whether or not we go mm. to church. They're actually important places for us all. So take a bit of ownership. Um, I think another point I'd like to make is that, you know, we reckon there's certainly 20,000 of them. We're now thinking that's a bit of a low estimate and it might be nearer 25. The dog's and, doing um, some burrowing. Oh, the dog's <laughs> digging a hole. <laughs> She's looking for some necroleachate. <laughs> We reckon the cumulative area of them is about the same as Exmoor National Park or the Isle of Wight. You know, mm. it's big. Quite big, it's quite big. a big area. Yeah. So that's in England and Wales. Yeah. So that's in England and Wales alone. So it's a big old area. 
And unlike the Isle of Wight, it's not in one place down off the south coast. You know, they're dotted all, you know, if you look on our website, you can just see a map of them all. And then if you start to imagine them as little, little pit stops, little cafes for things migrating, things moving in the face of climate change, I think they're going to be more and more significant, you know, over the next few few mm. decades. And also, you can view them as little hotspots of biodiversity that has the opportunity to spread back out. We've got a project that called Opening the Ark. The idea being that, you know, this is a Noah's Ark of species and um, time is ripe to open the gates and um, let the animals back out into the wider environment, you know, into our gardens, into our school fields, onto our verges, all over the place. So as well as perhaps thinking, can I help manage this fantastic site? You might go, well, can I have a bit of, bit of the green hay while you cut the grass and or pick some seeds from your, your wildflower meadow or take a, you know, maybe take some berries from the ancient yew and plant those. They're a really special local seed source mm. as well. A seed bank. A seed bank and a, and a bit of a template as well as to what grassland mm. looks like in absolutely in your town or village or in the particular city. microclimate yeah. or soil your type. Area. Yeah, you in your very based. local mm. area, yeah. There's lots of advice on our website, got written stuff, we've got little films, we've got all sorts of things and you can get in touch with us as well. And what's the website? caringforgodsacre.org.uk Okay. I think it's been really interesting listening to you. It's made me think that the um, churchyard or the burial ground is for everybody. And it's, it's like a social resource in the middle of the community, isn't it? It's not just about the church or just about Christianity even. It's a space for wildlife, but also for the people who live there. I think that's it's really true. Perspective. It is. I mean, it's more obvious, I think, if you're in a cemetery, because a municipal cemetery will have different areas for different denominations, different groups of people, different religions. So you're, you are more aware that it isn't about one specific yeah. religion or one type of Christianity when you're in, you're in a cemetery. But I think it, you know, it is very true of the churchyard too. More people come into churchyards simply to be in them mm. than to either visit a grave of somebody they know or somebody famous or to go into the building. We are all actually using these yeah. green spaces. We just don't perhaps think of them in that way. Mm. I know last summer I did some big cycle rides and certainly in some really awful weather. You know, the church might have been locked, but the porch is still there as a place to shelter um, or somewhere to come and have a picnic. You know, cycling down south, it was very trafficy and churchyard was always a little haven, peace and quiet. Mm. Another thing as well um, about people using them is they've got fantastically good access. Mm. You know, on the whole, if you're seeking out the best biodiversity, the oldest, the, the most species rich, the whatever, yeah. you're climbing a, a, a mountain, you're slogging over some styles, yes. you're, you're, you're wading yeah. in a wetland, <laughs> you're not able to sort of come in on a surface yeah. path with a bench, possibly even a loo. Yeah, and, a buggy and, or a wheelchair or something. A buggy or a wheelchair, yeah. They're really, really accessible. Often disabled parking space just outside. So it's like an oasis for wildlife and peace and quiet and a social space. Mm. Radical to think that they had fairs and... Um, yes, and um, ale. ale. They used to brew ale and sell it to raise church funds. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't too precious about it back in the day. 
We got a bit sombre at some point. I blame mm. the Victorians. Yeah, mm, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Harriet. That's been very interesting. Good. Um, Good. Hopefully, everybody will take a trip out to their local graveyard and see what's going on. <laughs> We're going to end the podcast with an evening soundscape from the graveyard. Listen out for some small glitchy sounds, which are the graveyard's bats recorded on a bat detector. <laughs>